One of the most uh, influential people in early church history is someone I'm sure most of you not heard of. He was a man named Simeon the Stylite. And he was the first of what were called the Desert Fathers. Around 423 A.D., he constructed a short pillar on the edge of the desert. And then he climbed on top of that pillar and he lived there for the next six years. As you can imagine, a site like that would draw people from near and far. And many came to, to laugh at him, to mock him. Some came to seek his wisdom and, and see what he was doing. And so when he was, the question was posed, why are you doing this? His answer was that simply, I'm a Christian who, want, who wants to commune with God. And I want to do it in solitude, free from the distractions of the world. Living on top of the pillar, I guess, was his way of, of trying to do this. But is that the way to... To live a life that pleases God, cut off from other people, no obligations to others, no distractions, just you and and you and God alone. Is that what it means to to be transformed by the gospel, the good news of salvation through Christ alone? Today, we're coming nearing the end of our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We have uh, another week. We'll be finishing up on the 16th. And today we come to uh, a passage which is. Uh, an interesting passage. And one of the issues that we're going to be dealing with out of this passage is what does it look like when, when an individual and maybe a church body, what does it look like when, when he or she and, and they have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Notice respect to Simeon, but I think Paul here offers us a better picture, a better alternative. Now, before we jump into Galatians 6, uh, let's do a recap uh, we've gone through the first five chapters over the since we started this fall. And in, in, the, ca- in the case of in the, in, the, in the process, Paul has been hammering home to us the importance of the gospel, what it is, what it is not, how it saves us, the implications of it, etc. And so I want to give you a recap, two major themes that we're going to pull out of that we've pulled out of Paul so far before we jump into this question of what does it look like for an individual or a church to be transformed by the gospel? The first major theme that Paul has, has really hammered home has been is on the issue of the gospel and how we're saved. The gospel, Paul says, is that we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ and that we can add nothing to it in an effort to be saved. In other words, there are times that we will try to add on good works, good things in the case of uh, of Galatia, the churches in Galatia, there was a group of people who were trying to add on circumcision and be becoming Jewish and, and observing certain laws and regulations and, and diets to, to be added on to faith in Christ to be saved. But Paul says that the, 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 the gospel is that Jesus plus nothing else equals acceptance in Christ. Faith in Christ plus nothing else equals acceptance with Christ. That's the gospel. The second major theme that Paul pulls out of Galatians to this point is that when we receive the gospel, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are set free. Freedom is a huge theme throughout the letter to Galatians. We're free from sin. We're free from from death. We're free from 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 Satan. But Paul adds a caveat. This freedom that we receive isn't living however we would like. Rather, freedom is living in the power of the Holy Spirit to love and serve God and to love and serve other people. So those are the major themes to this point. But let's just jump into this question of what does it look like when we really get what it means 
that we're saved through faith in Christ alone and, and we're set free. What does it look like when we use that freedom to love others and to serve others? So let's look again at the passage that was just read by Jennifer. And I want to begin one verse before she did. Verse 26 of chapter 5 and read a couple verses at a time. We'll work our way through this. Paul begins, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, sisters, if someone was caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him or her gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, Paul makes an assumption here. Did you catch the assumption he's making? The assumption he's making is that the Christian life is to be lived in relationship with each other. You can tell by his language. Brothers and sisters, carry each other's burdens, share all good things, do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And this assumption, this idea wasn't just his alone. The assumption that God's people will do life together, will work out their faith together, live their life together in faith is throughout all the scriptures. For example, Psalm 131 says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. That's God's intent. That's his purpose. And that's and the gospel makes that possible for us. The gospel frees us to live and to love as God has designed us an authentic community with each other. You know, one of the greatest threats, I believe, to the church of Jesus Christ is the tendency for us to become isolated in our faith journey with Jesus. But community is, is essential. There are no, there are, there aren't to be solitary pilgrims or, or lone rangers toughening it out, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. Remember the old Simon and Garfunkel song, I'm a rock, I'm an island. The Christian is not to be an island disconnected from their brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, we are part of a community, of a family. No Christian is an only child. In the Old Testament, when Jewish pilgrims sang the Psalms as they journeyed to Jerusalem, they didn't do it alone. They didn't sing alone. They didn't travel alone. They came to the feasts and the holy days from different walks of life, from different regions of Israel, from different tribes. No matter how hard the journey was, the companionship of God's people made it easier. We, too, are pilgrims. We have a destination, heaven, and we are to travel and do our lives together. It's foolish to try to be a believer in isolation. The moment we become a Christian, we become a part of the, of the body of, of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian and pastor, wrote, Our community with one another consists in what Christ has done for us. In other words, we are a family in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. Now, granted, our relationship with God in Christ is personal. Each one of us must come to him alone by faith and put our trust in him. Somebody can't do it for us. But God does not make private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are personal, true. They are intimate, yes. But private? No. God intends for us to work out our salvation and our faith in the context of the community of believers. It's been his design since the beginning of the world. 
For instance, God created Adam and Eve to be companions in the garden. God called the whole community of Israel out of Egypt to promise to, to, to travel together to the promised land. We have the example of Christ who lived and worked with 12 disciples for three years. And on the day of Pentecost, the early church was formed when 120 people gathered together and the Holy Spirit came upon them and made them one body. The Bible knows nothing of a faith that is defined only by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of his or her own heart or home, apart from others on a lonely retreat or on a pillar in the edge of the desert. When Christ was asked what was the greatest commandment, remember his response? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then immediately afterwards, before anyone could make the wrong assumption, draw the wrong conclusion, or go off and make a private religion on their own, he connects our experience of love and faith in God to community, to relationships, stating in the next verse, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Philip Yancey puts it this way, Christianity is not a purely intellectual internal faith. It can only be lived in community. So part of what it means to be transformed by the gospel is that we are to live in intentional, authentic relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Next in Galatians, Paul gives us some very practical instruction about how to do that. And he tells us about things we're not to do and things that we are to do. First, the things we are not to do. He says in verse 26 of chapter 5, don't be conceited, don't provoke, don't envy. Now, why does he say these things? Because those are the things we're all tempted to do when we are in relationship with other people, even in the church. We're tempted to think we're better off than others. We're tempted to set them off or provoke them or push their buttons. We're tempted to envy what they have or what we don't have. Those are the dangers of being in relationship with other people. Paul says, don't do them. Paul then tells us about some things that we are to do. And Paul knows that we of all people should know that, that we are flawed human beings. We are sinners saved by grace. And when fellow believers do have problems, we can't say, well, that's too bad they're in that situation. I feel for them, but that's their issue. It's not mine. Paul says this in response to that attitude. Verse 1. Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The gospel frees us to love selflessly and humbly, helping each other in our walks with Jesus Christ. So, so here's what Paul is saying. My sin is not just my business. Your sin is not just your business. Instead of being arrogant or irritating or envious of others, we are to look out for each other's spiritual well-being. And when we become aware of someone else's sin, Paul said we should privately, gently, out of relationship, go to them and, 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 and speak to them and, and try to encourage them in their walk with Christ. Now that can get pretty messy. Can it? I mean, no one likes to be told what they're doing is wrong, and I don't personally like that. And so Paul makes sure that when we do approach someone about something in their lives, that we do so from a position of humility and relationship. For instance, when I was in college, I had a group of uh, 
four other guys that I, that I hung with primarily. We were all followers of Christ. And, and we did this for each other. Uh, college can be a challenging time spiritually. You're off on your own for the first time. You can, you can do what you want to do. You, you don't have to really answer to anybody other than your professor when it's test time. And, and you can just do whatever you want to do almost. And, and, and these guys, we helped each other out when one of us made the wrong choice, made a wrong decision, had a, a bad kind of projection, trajectory, trajectory in our lives. And, 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 and these guys would come, we'd come to each other and say, hey, you're, you're on the wrong path. What, what are you thinking? How's that, how's that jive with your, your faith in Christ? And because we were committed to each other, and because we knew that each other had our best interests in heart, we received what was said because it was done in love and, and humility and care and concern. Now, we have to be careful here because care and concern can very quickly be perceived by others as judgmentalism or pride. It can quickly turn into that as well in our own lives. And so Paul, knowing that, says this in verses 3, 4, and 5. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his or her own actions. Then she can take pride in herself without comparing herself to somebody else, for each one should carry their own load. Now, it's interesting what Paul does here. Paul says that when it comes to other people, their problems are our problems. We should offer help. We should offer care and concern, help them carry their burdens. But Paul says when it comes to ourselves, we are to take responsibility for our own actions and our own relationship with Christ. I think he does that to, to keep us from falling into judgmentalism and, and pride. The whole idea of what Jesus said, before you remove the speck from your, your friend's eye, make sure and take the log out of your own. So what does this gospel look like when it's fleshed out? It looks like this. Loving others in an authentic relationship, making their problems our problems, helping them carry their burdens, all the while keeping watch over our own lives so that we don't negatively influence others. In the book, The Good Soldier, Sebastian Younger um, uh, follows around uh, a single platoon of U.S. soldiers stationed in a dangerous part of Afghanistan for 15 months. And living and working in the midst of a war zone made him realize how much the soldiers had to had to rely upon each other. What you do or don't do as a soldier affects everybody else in your platoon. He writes about the experience. Margins were so small and errors potentially so catastrophic that every soldier had a kind of de facto authority to reprimand others, in some cases, even officers. And because combat can hinge on small details, there was nothing in a soldier's daily routine that fell outside the group's purview. Whether you tied your shoes or cleaned your weapon or drank enough water or secured your night vision gear were all matters of public concern and so were open to public scrutiny. Once I watched a private accost another private whose bootlaces were trailing on the ground. Not that he cared what it looked like, but if something happened out there, and out there everything happened suddenly, the guy with the loose laces couldn't be counted on to keep his feet at a crucial moment. It was the other man's life he was risking, not just his own. There was no such thing as personal safety out there. What happened to you happened to everyone else. Paul says in the body of Christ, we are all connected. We are all one family. And our choices and our actions and our sins and our lives affect other people. Therefore, he says, we are to humbly 
lovingly, selflessly help each other as we follow Jesus Christ. And when our lives and our church are being transformed by the gospel, we will love each other sacrificially. We will follow the example of Jesus Christ. I can tell you of countless occasions where this has happened in our church through a variety of ministries and people. Things like our pastoral care visitation team, our deacons, our care ministries, our life groups, our youth and children's ministry, our music ministries, so on and so forth, women's and men's ministries, through friendships. And we must strive to do our very best in this area. And we will make mistakes, and these will sometimes fall through the cracks, but we must always strive to grow in sacrificial love and service for each other. In fact, Jesus himself reminds us, the world you will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You might be thinking, what you described as community, well, that's all good. But we can find some of these things in a service club or at a school or a business or a team. And yes, you can. What is to separate the kind of community the church is supposed to be from the type of community that the world offers us? What is it? It's the cross. It's the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ lovingly poured out his life for us. On the cross, we have the, at the cross, we have the hope of a new beginning. At the cross, we can find the forgiveness that we love and that we need. At the cross, we are amazed by God's grace. At the cross, we are given a new and eternal and, and bigger family. At the cross, we can stop pretending. We can drop the mask. And we can see that we are in need of a Savior. And we can begin to know each other in a family of love, acceptance, and understanding. And that's what we celebrate today as we come to the table. Because the table is where we remember and celebrate the fact that Christ's life and death and resurrection are what makes it possible, makes it possible for us to have hope. That through his sacrifice, through his love, through his forgiveness, through his grace, we are made whole. And we are made one. Through the cross of Christ, we are one family. We are community. We celebrate communion with God the Father through faith in Jesus, but we also celebrate communion with each other through the common faith that we have through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the table today, my hope and prayer is that we will be individuals and a community, a family, who do life together, who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ through sacrificial love, through care, through concern, by carrying each other's burdens for the goal and the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for um, the relationship we have with him through faith. We thank you for the right standing that we have received with you, Father, because of Jesus. It's all because of him, not because of our good works, but it's only through Jesus Christ alone. Father, now as we come to the table, we pray that our eyes and our hearts and our minds would be opened to your presence with us, that we would commit ourselves more fully and completely to you, that we would ask your Spirit to reveal any sin and confess it, that we ask your Spirit to strengthen and assure us and to help us to be people who, like Jesus, are known for our love for others. We offer ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, in your name asking for your blessing upon this time.
Amen.